So normally when you come in, there are sermon notes that are posted there for you. You notice there weren't any there today. I had to pull them because we, we rewrote the sermon at the last minute today. Um, so if you are, and I only mention that because of this, if you're a life group leader, there are sermon questions for you online. Go to the website and because uh, I know life groups, some will be meeting this afternoon and tonight and you'll need those questions since we do sermon-based life groups. So they're there for you. So never fear. Uh, they are there even though they're not here this morning. Uh, here's what I think God's word is for us today. We're gonna look at 2 Samuel chapter seven, a really important moment in David's life, but I think the message of God to us uh, in his word today is really simple. I think some of you are struggling to believe God loves you. And I think he wants to, I think he wants to remind you of that today. I think God wants you to know that he loves you. And he doesn't love you in a distant, sort of um, logical way. He loves you deeply and intimately and with great affection. God loves you. He looks at you with love. I want to pray for us. We're going to look at God's word. And I think we're going to see God's love in a way that we don't often see it. I think when we talk about God's love, we usually go to certain, certain places in the scriptures where, where it's very evident, it's very obvious. Um, but we're going to look at the fact that we worship and serve and are loved by a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God today. A covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And what a demonstration of his love it is. And our right response to that love is to love in return, is to trust him, and it's to obey him. That's the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to stand in front of your people and to be able to look out on them. And I pray that you give me your eyes to see them today. Oh, how you love them. You who did not spare your own only son, but gave him up for us all. Oh, how you love them. And I pray that that would sink into our hearts today. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you implant and renew knowledge of the love of God in us today as your people? We need it. We thank you for our moms today. And we pray your blessing on them. And we pray for those in our family for whom today is a hard day. That you administer comfort. Thank you for the privilege of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. We thank you for that privilege to live life together as a body. Now make us into your church. Shape us into the men and women you desire us to be and the church that you have called us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So 2 Samuel chapter seven, where God communicates his love to David in a pretty astonishing way. And there's a lot of intentionality in the placement of this passage in the whole scope of the story of David's life. If you've been with us, you know we've been studying and thinking about sort of snapshot moments from King David's life that are pretty significant. This one uh, is interesting because it's probably the most significant moment in David's life where God makes a covenant with David. He makes a promise to David and it's a really radical promise and it's a really significant one. But what is perhaps more interesting that you might not realize is that this, this story probably takes place later in David's life 
but their authors of Scripture, inspired by God, chose to put it in this place. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. Rather than record it perhaps when it took place in a linear fashion in his life, maybe later on when he has rest from his enemies, we hear, is the time that this is taking place. Rather than recording it there, it's recorded here. And there's, there's probably a political reason for that. And one, it's that God is promising to David that I'm going to make your descendants kings on the throne. I'm going to put your descendants on the throne. And so at the beginning of David's reign, it makes sense to communicate that to God's people. Hey, remember that David's sons are going to be the ones who sit on the throne. That's sort of an earthly reason to communicate it here up front. But I think there's an even perhaps more important reason, which is really helpful to us, is how many of you last week, if you were here and we talked about God's holiness and our sinfulness, and that was weighty for us, yes? That's a weighty truth. And, and you can't help but think, how, how can I, in my sinfulness, approach a God that is this holy? If you remember, Uzzah touches the ark and the wrath of God burns against him. And we are daunted by that, I think, if we're honest. And we think, this is, this is a holy God. It's a powerful God. It's a God who doesn't take sin lightly. And we know we're steeped in it. And then in the very next turn, what God is going to do is he's going to say, yes, that is exactly who I am. And also, I want you to know how great my love is for you. And also, I want you to know how great my love is for you. So he's going to turn the page literally in Scripture. And he's going to say, now, the next thing I want to show you is the great depth of my love. And that I'm a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And God shows his love through that. I recognize in my own life that I'm more prone, and you can see if you resonate with this, you might be the other way. I think there's probably some people who, for whom it is very easy to think about and ponder and concentrate on the love of God. And perhaps for those of you that that's the case, uh, there is a need to think about the holiness of God. There is a need to think about the fact that God is just and that he won't be approached in any particular way. I think that's an important thing. Uh, and a lot of us might lean that way. I find in my own demeanor, in my own makeup, that I am uh, more prone to think about God's holiness and justice and righteousness and omnipotence, that he is high and exalted and above. And sometimes what that does is that when I think about God loving me, sometimes that hits me in a kind of a hollow way because I, I have trouble marrying those two things together just as a human being sometimes. I know that they're both true. I know that they're both absolutely testified to in the scriptures, but if I'm honest, my heart is not always moved to understand at a, at a volitional level, like at a, at a deep level, my heart is not always moved to, to, to grasp that God loves me. My heart is moved to believe that God is high and exalted. But my heart is not always moved and able to, able to wrap itself around the knowledge that God loves me. I wonder if some of you experience that same thing. Your bent might be kind of like mine. God shows his love in a variety of ways. And one of the things I was thinking about this week is, uh, you know, when Amanda and I first got married and we had no kids at the time, obviously, and uh, we were kind of just getting into marriage, I would say we experience love from one another in different ways than we experience it now that we have three kids running around and life is full. There's a lot of responsibilities on our plates and there's a lot of kids running around with a lot of activities. And I would have said probably early on in marriage, we would have said, you know, like, it's, it's words of affirmation, and that's still there and important. But I would say with uh, all that we have on our plates now, the most loving thing either one of us ever feels from, from the other is when you just 
do an act of service for the other one without being asked. When it's like when you, yeah, so you're like, yes, exactly. Yeah, you didn't have to be asked. It's like somebody just spotted it. Like if I do that, that will really help them out and I'll just do that. And you're like, that would have early in our marriage not been all that significant, to be honest. It'd been like, well, that's no big deal. I wasn't in that big a rush. I probably could have done that later, but thank you very much. I'd really rather you show your love in these ways. Don't ever say that out loud, but I just said. <laughs> just thank you is the right thing to say. But that might've been how we actually felt, right? And at this stage, you know, 10 years in, and I'll be curious for those of you who are 25 and 30 and 40 years into, you can tell me what it's like then, right? But at this stage, 10 years in, I would say we're, we're run ragged a lot. And so just when the other one just serves, just says, oh, I, I saw a need, I saw something I could do, and, and, they, and they did that for us. Uh, that that's a way that we experience God's love, probably in a really primary sense in these days. And I think as we think about how God shows his love for us, one of the things that you're gonna see today is that God is serving his people by making covenant promises with them. And in doing that, he's, he's showing his great love for them. So let's look at the passage together. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter seven. Verses one through 17 is what we're gonna read. So it's a good little chunk there. And here's what it says beginning in verse one. It says, now when the king <clears throat> lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David." 
So what we see here is this pinnacle moment in David's life where God is making a covenant with him. And so in order to understand the covenant that God is making with David, we could just dive right into that. But probably what is most helpful to us is if we understand this covenant in light of some of the other covenants that God has made throughout the history of the world. There are a handful of really key covenants that really tell the story of God's redeeming work throughout scripture. And they build upon one another. They build up to this covenant and this covenant actually leads to another covenant. And so I want to talk with you about that a little bit. So we're going to try and answer a few questions today. Number one is what's a covenant? Because some of you might be thinking, I don't know what that is. All right. So what is a covenant? Number two, what are the covenants that God has made throughout scripture? And we're just going to do a very brief review. So can we do a little bit of that? Is that okay? All right, good. You got to, so you got to put on the thinking caps with me a little bit, right? And so we're going to do that. And then from there, what I want to show you is how God is communicating his love through these covenants. And the, really the question we're trying to answer t- today is this, is how should we relate to a covenant-making and keeping God? This kind of God who makes and keeps covenants with his people. How do we relate to him? And we'll see the answer to that today. So like I said... Uh, God has made a a number of covenants that build upon one another. But let's ask the question first, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant very simply is this. It's a binding promise between two parties. Let's be really simple about it, right? Let's not make this overly complex. A covenant is a binding promise between two parties. So what's the most common covenant we talk about in our day and age? Marriage, absolutely. Marriage is a covenant between two people. It's intended to be binding. And you make promises to one another. I just did a wedding yesterday, right? And I stood in front of bride and groom. And they, you know, bride walks down the aisle. Groom is weeping. I didn't know if we were going to make it through, right? He's just bawling. Uh, And I'm like thinking, this is going to pay off later for you. Good job. Way to go. (laughs) And bride is coming down the aisle, you know. And I always give the groom the little, I'm like, dude, I'm going to give you one little word of advice. Don't take your eyes off of her. Like when she's walking down the aisle, you just keep your eyes glued to her. Don't do the whole like, you know, squirrel thing where you're looking over here and over there. Just focus in. He did a great job and he's bawling. She comes down the aisles and the tears start start to come. So we have to take a moment, right? But why, why does, he's not a weepy guy. Why does he start to cry in that moment? Because what he's about to partake of is really significant. It's a covenant. He's about to make promises. And then we go through the whole ceremony and the highlight of the ceremony every time is the vows. Every time it's the vows. Everything else is fluff and the vows are what matter, right? Because the vows are the promises. They're the promises. They are the, the guarantees. They're the things that we're saying to one another. This is what I promise to be for you and to do with you and for you and to you. I promise to be this all the days of my life. I promise that. Right? And then vice versa. And that's always such a sweet, sweet moment in every ceremony, right? So a covenant is, a, is an agreement between two people. They make binding promises to one another. Now, when God makes a covenant, when God makes a covenant, there are a couple things we need to understand about that. In God's covenants, God makes promises and he expects his people to keep certain commitments. So whenever you look through the scriptures and you see a covenant, there are always conditional aspects and unconditional aspects. There's only one exception to that, and it's the, co- the, God, the covenant that God makes with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, which has no conditions. It's completely unconditional. And the reason for that is because that covenant is made with all of creation, and you can't very well ask a squirrel to make a, a commitment to you. Right? 
God just makes a promise and there's no commitment required on the part of the one he's making the promise to. But every other one, even though there are many unconditional elements to the covenants he makes, every other one also has conditions, also has commitments that the people with whom God is making a covenant are expected to fulfill. Are you with me? All right. A couple other things to know. When God makes a covenant, he's always the initiator of that covenant. He is never responsive in his covenant. He never waits and says, you know, Abraham does not come to God and say, God, I want to make a covenant with you. And God goes, great idea, let's do that. God is always the one who initiates his covenants. Did you notice that in this scriptures uh, that we read here with David, was it David that initiated the covenant or was it God that initiated the covenant? It was God, and I love the language. David wants to do something great. He wants to build God a house. And he says, God says, I'm gonna have Solomon do that. I'm gonna have your son do that. He's gonna build me a house. But what I want you to know is that you're not the one who's initiating this relationship. I am initiating towards you. And in fact, I, the language he says is, you wanna build me a house, I'm gonna make you into a house. I'm gonna give you a line of kings on the throne like you wouldn't believe the promise I'm about to give you. It's so good. And so I love that language. He says, you want to build me a house? I, no, because I initiate my covenants. I'm going to build you a house. It's God's idea. Whenever God makes a covenant, he is the initiator of it. And what a great demonstration of his love, yes? That when God makes a covenant, he doesn't do it responsively. He does it proactively. He chooses and he initiates towards us. God's love is not a reactive love. You didn't have to love him first. For him to love you. He loved you first and came for you and initiated towards you. He did not wait for you to have some spark of affection for him and then go, aha, good, now. Now I will show them that I love them. No, far from it, friends. God always initiates his covenants. So God's covenants also then Another thing you need to see is that when God is making a covenant in Scripture, he's showing a desire to partner with us to shape the world how he wants it to be. That when God makes it, it's, it's like a handshake, right? The covenant's like a handshake, and God is saying, I can do everything. Nothing's outside my power, but I delight to make a partnership with you to shape the world into my image, to make it how I want it to be. And so when God is making these covenants, he's also choosing to make a partnership with us, which is another act of grace and mercy. Us who possess very little power, very little wisdom, very little knowledge, and yet God says, I want to make you my partners in shaping the world into the place I choose for it to be and want for it to be. And so when God is making covenants, he's initiating, he's initiating a partnership in shaping the world. Uh, if, if you want to think about that well, you can think about it like gardening, right? When we garden, why do, when we garden, we depend upon God, right? Who gives the, who gives the sun? Who gives the rain? Right? Who gave the seed to be planted into the earth? God gave all that, and yet what do we do? We plant the seed. We till the soil. We may even take the hose and do some of the watering, right? Take the water that God has provided and put it in the spot where it needs to be, right? And so we're cultivating. We're partnering with God to produce what? To produce fruit, to produce a harvest. Gardening is a great illustration of our partnership with God, right? We weed the garden. We pull the things out that shouldn't be there so that the things that should be there can grow and flourish, so that's what we mean when we talk about a covenant. That's what a covenant is. Are we clear enough on that? Is that good? All right, fantastic. So let's look then, what are, the, what are God's covenants in the Bible? And we're gonna do a quick, just kind of like, here's the promise and here's the commitment required 
with that promise, okay? Now, we're not gonna discuss the, the covenant made in Eden with Adam. There's some debate among theologians whether that counts as a covenant or whether it doesn't. I think it probably does. It doesn't have specific covenant language, but there is certainly a promise of flourishing and blessing, and there's a requirement, don't eat of the fruit of this tree. Uh, walk with me, like listen to me, right? And so, but we're gonna, we're gonna kind of move past that one. So the first kind of major covenant we see then is the covenant that God makes with Noah. That's the first one. It's in Genesis chapter nine. And in Genesis chapter nine, the earth has been flooded. God has spared Noah's family. And at the end of all that episode, God makes a covenant. Now the earth is dried and they've come out of the ark and God makes a covenant with Noah. And the covenant that he makes is what? I will never destroy the earth again in this way. I'll never flood the earth again, which is why, even though it seems like it rains every day here right now, we rest assured that God is going to stop the rain and the rainbow will come out, right? I mean, it's why we're not, we don't, we're not sitting in here today afraid that we're gonna walk out and this is never gonna stop because God has promised that it will never happen again. That's his promise and there is no requirement on the other side of that, as I alluded to earlier. It's the only covenant where there is absolute, without condition, a promise, and there is no commitment on the part of creation needed to keep it. But the important thing to remember about that is that the reason there's no commitment is because this covenant serves as a way to prepare the ground for all the other covenants that are gonna come. In other words, if he destroyed the earth, he couldn't make the other covenants that he's about to make. But because he's promised not to destroy the earth, right, through in this manner again, because he's promised not to do that, now there's space where all these other covenants can be made that God is going to make. And so each one, here's the thing, church, each one builds on the last one. And I want to show you how, right? So the second covenant then happens just a few chapters later in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. We see the covenant that God makes with Abraham. At the time, his name is Abram, right? And the promise of this covenant is God says to Abram, I'm going to give you three things. He says, I'm gonna make you the father of many nations. In other words, I'm gonna give you children. I'm gonna give you an inheritance of children. I'm gonna give you land. There's land promises, right? And I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna make universal blessing. In other words, blessing for the whole world is gonna come through you. That's another important thing to remember about God's covenants. Whenever God makes a covenant, Hear me, church, this is gonna be really important when we think about the covenant we have with God. Whenever God makes a covenant, he doesn't make it just for the sake of the one with whom he's making it. He always makes it for the good of others as well. That that covenant is always meant to extend blessing beyond the recipient of the covenant. It is meant to, be the, to share blessing, essentially. So God makes those three promises to Abraham. And when he makes them, at first, at first glance, it seems unconditional. God just chooses Abram and he says, I'm gonna do these things, I'm gonna give you these promises. But we find in Genesis chapter 17 that Abram understands that there actually is a condition with it and the condition is that you will walk with God. That you will walk with God is Genesis 17's word to Abram that there is a condition that Abram would be faithful, not worship any other gods. The other, and we don't call it a condition because it's not a work, we don't call it a condition or a commitment, but there is a requirement of faith, which is what we're told. Abram, Abraham believed God. He believed the promise that God gave him. He believed that when God said he was gonna do this, make a covenant with him, Abram believed him, right? And so we learn something very important about covenants. Is covenants are activated by faith. And the most important covenant that we're gonna come to at the end of this story is activated by faith, by belief, not by 
required work. All right, so that's number two. Then number three, then the next covenant that comes, we've done Noah and then we've done Abraham. The next covenant that comes is the covenant that God makes with Israel. And this is all through the book of really Exodus and Deuteronomy, uh, but we'll, we'll kind of pinpoint Exodus chapter 20 because it's where God gives the 10 commandments. And the covenant that God makes with Israel has numerous blessings uh, associated with it. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm choosing you. That's the heart of it. I'm choosing you. You are my people. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to use you then to bless other nations. So that's, that's the third covenant that God makes with Aaron. That's the promise is I'm going to bless you. And there's a promise of many different kinds of blessings. The requirement, the commitment that comes with the one with whom he's made the covenant is keep my law. I'm going to give you this law and you need to keep it. Right? And we already see the problem, don't we? Right? So I'm going to give you the law. That's the requirement. That's the commitment. The promise is you're my people. I choose you and I will bless you. Then the fourth it's the one we just looked at. It's the covenant that God makes with David. It's the covenant that God makes with David right here, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the promise was this. David, I'm going to give you a son who's going to sit on the throne forever. Now, something in you should go, wait a minute, because that, like, that doesn't seem like it's happened. At least not as we look at Solomon and the sons of David in a physical sense, Right? But this is the covenant, this is the promise. I'm gonna put one of your sons on the throne forever. And again, here in this text, we didn't see a requirement or a commitment made. But when we go over to 1 Kings chapter two, and we see David talking to Solomon as he's getting ready to hand the throne down to Solomon, he expresses to Solomon, there is in fact a, a requirement for this covenant. He says, you must obey all that God commands. You must obey all that God commands so that he will fulfill what he has promised. That's what we find in 1 Kings chapter two. And again, very similar to the nation of Israel. Obey the commands of God. Listen to what he said and obey him. And in addition to that, uh, Nate Winters and I were talking about this this week and he reminded me of Deuteronomy chapter 17. What a great reminder. Where hundreds of years before a, a king was even on the throne, God prescribed what kings should do in the nation of Israel. There wasn't even a king at the point. We were hundred years, hundreds of years away from even establishing a king. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God says, you're gonna ask for a king one day. And when you ask for a king, I'll allow you to have a king. And when you have that king, here's what he needs to do. He needs to live in this way as a king. And so when David says to Solomon, keep the commands of God, he's thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 17 as well as Exodus chapter 20. Okay, you guys did great. Awesome job. Y'all still with me? Fantastic. <laughs> You're not. You just laughed at me. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to bring you back in now, okay? So those are the covenants that God has made and they're the commitments that come with each one. Now, think about this. Each one builds on the last. So how do they build on one another? And this is really sh short and sweet, right? God makes a covenant with Noah and that creates a space so that the earth won't be destroyed so that God's activity can go forward. And then God makes a covenant with Abraham and when he makes a covenant with him, he is choosing him to create a group of people from him, right? That's really important for God's redemptive plan to go forward. Abraham, I'm gonna make a nation out of you. That's how the covenant helps move the story forward. And then we come to the covenant he makes with Israel, and now we see the people that God created from Abraham. That's the people. And Israel, now he's gonna say, let me develop this story a little bit further. I'm gonna give you a law, a set of rules and regulations that are gonna show you exactly who I am. They're gonna show you how holy I am. 
how powerful I am. I'm gonna give you that law. So that covenant carries the story forward a little bit further. And then we see, get this, the covenant with David comes into play. And now we see, not only do we have the nation that's been created through Abraham and that nation's been given a clear vision of who God is through the law. Now we get a king who we hear is going to reign on the throne forever which means he must be a very significant character that we're gonna run into somewhere in here, right? And so we've seen that the covenant is moving, the covenants are moving the story forward. So here's the thing. We've seen how that advances the story forward. They're building on each other, but of course there's a problem because the people never quite uphold their end of the deal, right? In all the commitments that I said were required of the covenants that God made, did you hear anything that you thought, yep, they did that? I mean, if you've read the Bible, some of you maybe are new to it, we'll just tell you they don't do it. Sorry for the spoiler, okay? They don't do it. Throughout, even Abraham, who does well and is faithful to God, his descendants don't keep the commandments. They don't follow God and walk with God. They reject him, right? And so there's a constant failure on the part of the people. The people of Israel, they don't keep the law. The sons of David, here's what's gonna happen in the story of David. I'll just let you in on this, right? Solomon comes along, David's son. He inherits the throne. He builds God a, ha God a house, just like this is talking about. He builds God a house, just like this is talking about, which is awesome. But he also does what Deuteronomy 17 says exactly not to do. He marries foreign wives and his heart becomes divided and he doesn't read the word of God every day and have it buried in his heart so that he obeys God and walks with him. He disobeys the commitment that's required of him. And so what God does is he says, I'm gonna break the kingdom in two and I'm gonna put, you're not gonna be on the throne anymore of the northern kingdom, but because I love David and have promised, I'm gonna keep you and your descendants on the throne of Judah, the southern kingdom. So we already see we're only one generation away from David and we already have a loss. We already have something about the covenant requirements have not been kept. So God is well within his rights to, to not keep his end of the deal, right? Because they came with requirements and the requirements weren't kept. And yet there are these unconditional parts of these covenants that seem like God is just saying, I'm gonna do this even when you don't keep the commitments. And that's what we saw when we were just reading the covenant of David. Think about how some of the things that we just read very clearly applied to Solomon, right? I'm gonna bring a son through you and that son's gonna build me a house. And Solomon did that, right? That's exactly right. But this is where we see when God has these moments in scripture, it's like, it's like he's operating with a telescope, right? When we read these things. And there's one fulfillment of the promise that he's making that's very up close, but way in the background, telescoping way beyond this first one that's in our view, Solomon, there's someone else that God has in mind that's ultimately really truly the fulfillment of the promise. Because what happens is he says, I'm gonna put your descendant on the throne forever. Well, in an earthly sense, there's no way that could happen because there's no more throne in Israel, right? The nation went into exile in Babylon and once they did, there's no more throne anymore. And you would think, well, God wasn't gonna keep the covenant because the people didn't keep it. But God says, no, I'm gonna keep the covenant. I'm just gonna do it in a way that you don't understand. And so what he's saying here, when he says, I'm gonna give you a son that's gonna reign forever, what he's saying is, I'm gonna raise one who's going to fulfill the righteous requirements of this covenant, and then through him, I'm gonna put him on the throne forever. And that's where Jesus comes into the picture for us in these covenants. 
Jesus comes into the picture in this covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 with David because Solomon and all the sons of David could never keep these requirements. They could never keep the covenants. But God would send one who could, which is why God can make, anytime God makes an unconditional statement in a covenant, he's probably the one that's going to fulfill the covenant himself. He's going to take care of the requirements, the commitments, as well as the promise. That's how good God is. He said to David, I'm gonna give you a son to reign on the throne forever. And then he provided that very son who could fulfill the righteous requirements needed for the covenant to take effect. So this is what Isaiah 9, Isaiah has in mind in chapter nine. They had begun to understand, the nation saw that there was no way as they'd gone into exile in Babylon, that there was no way this covenant could be kept. But listen to what Isaiah, this famous Christmas passage, right? In Isaiah chapter nine, verse six and seven, where he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty what? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and then now here's the key, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth, and what? Forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you see what Isaiah is getting at? He's saying, here's the fulfillment. The child that will be born will be the true son of David, the righteous one who has come to keep the covenant that none of the other sons have kept. And he's gonna reign on the throne forever. The government will be upon his shoulders. And the only way that can happen is if we have a king who's not human because no human king could ever keep the righteousness required to reign forever on the throne. But because Jesus is fully God and fully man, we have in him one who is both the covenant maker and then the commitment keeper so that the covenant could be kept. So this covenant then, because Isaiah, because this covenant of a throne forever, it points us to the final covenant that we talk about in scripture. And that's what we call in the New Testament, the new covenant, the new covenant. And the new covenant is this. Here's the promise from God, life forever with him. Life forever with him. That his love would never be taken from you. That you would always be the object of his love and salvation. That's the promise. What's the requirement? What's the commitment? Believe. Believe. Believe that Jesus, the one spoken about in Isaiah chapter nine, believe that he can keep the righteous requirements of the law that Israel never kept. Believe that he can inhabit the throne that was promised to David. Believe that he can pay for your sin you see how the covenants all build on one another? What you and I could never do and never be. We have failed just like Israel failed. We have failed just like the descendants of David failed. But God in his mercy has made an unconditional covenant with us. And the only way he can make that unconditional covenant with us to give us life forever with him is if he also fulfills the requirement of that covenant himself because we could never fulfill it. And that's exactly what he's done in Jesus. Second Samuel chapter seven is just, is just begging us to see Jesus as the true and better king who reigns on the throne. Now, the last question for us is, is this. 
How should we relate to a God like this? How should we relate to a God who makes and keeps covenants in this way? And again, I I want you to see, church, I want you to see that what God is doing, he's making these covenants, is he's not just working out a logical plan that he had in mind. He is showing you a demonstration of his love. So the right response of God's people is three things, and always three things. You could summarize all the commitments required in the covenants we just looked at as these three things. Love him, trust him, and obey him. Love him, trust him, and obey him. I mean, can we just not make this complex, right? I want you to think about this for a moment. What kind of God, how how great must his love for us be that he would initiate a covenant with us and that he wouldn't just sort of say, I'm gonna make a covenant with you, but I would make a series of covenants throughout all of human history to lead up to and build up to the covenant that I now have made with you. You are the recipient of the new covenant if you're in Jesus Christ. You're the recipient of a covenant with God that has come into place because God made all these other covenants in great wisdom and great patience and he fulfilled those covenants and walked in them throughout all of history. Now go back to what I said before. Sometimes we want love to be expressed in a certain way, but how meaningful is it that God's great expression of love is his steadfast service towards us by making covenants and then keeping those covenants throughout all of history to lead to the place where we could have a covenant with him in the new covenant. Yes? Kind of like Amanda and I, it's that kind of serving us through that. What could be a better act of love than that? What could be a greater expression of his love for us? And that he's initiated that with us. I want to bring you back to that again too. You did not initiate in love towards God. He initiated in love towards you. He's he's done it. And our right response, our right response is that our hearts should leap towards God. I, I didn't read it, but after God makes this covenant with David, there's a prayer that's recorded in the second half of chapter 17. And David, if I could summarize that prayer, it's essentially this. Who am I? Who, who am I that you would speak this way about me and make such promises to me? Do you know why David responds that way? He's astonished by the love of God for him. He can't fathom that God could love him in this way and express such promises to him. And the thing David also knows is that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. The other thing that you need to know that our right response, to just see love well up in our hearts for God is that we would say with David, who who am I? Who are we that God would make a covenant with us? And that covenant required the shedding of the blood of his son to come into effect. Who are we? God loves you. And the right response of our hearts is to love him in return is to love him, to see the, the wisdom and the patience of all the covenants that God has made to usher in a covenant with us. The next right response for us is to trust him. It's to trust him. Easier said than done, right? Trust him. 
If God has worked out his plan and established these covenants throughout all of the history of the earth to bring us to the place where he can make a a covenant, a new covenant with us through Christ, and he can bring all that about and make sure that every piece fits, is he someone who is worthy of our trust? Yeah, he is to be trusted. He is to be loved because he loved first, and he is to be trusted because he is trustworthy and he always keeps his promises. You can trust. You can, I mean, we gather every Sunday and we sing to God and unlike Uzzah, we are not consumed for daring to enter into the presence of God and sing to him. Unlike him, we are not consumed. Why? Because God keeps his promises. And God has said to you and I, if you are in Christ, then you may approach my throne. You may come to me. You may speak to me. You may call me friend. You may know that I am your father and you are my son or my daughter. It's astonishing. And we do that and we don't even think twice about it, right? I mean, how many of you got real concerned that you were going to get consumed by God today when you showed up at church? Yeah, you didn't, I hope you didn't worry about that, right? And, and the reason you didn't have to is because God has made a promise and he will always keep his promises. He will always keep his promises. They will be true tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. They will be true for all eternity. He will never fail to fulfill his promise to us. Should we trust him? but my job is really hard. Yeah, trust him. But my family isn't what I, you know, it's kind of, it's a mess and it's, yeah, trust him. He is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. The last right response of God's people is to obey. It's to obey. Our king is on the throne forever. There's never a day where he's not king. And kings are to be what? Obeyed. They are to be obeyed. And here's the great joy. You can know that obedience will always produce a better result than disobedience in your life. Always. Without fail. And I know that sometimes we don't believe that. Sometimes we think. Right? This seems like it's going to get the better result over this way. I want to do this thing, and it's going to produce the thing I want. And I can promise you every time, if that thing is disobedience, every time the result will not be as good in the ultimate sense as obedience will be. Every time. This is how good our covenant-keeping God is. He has guaranteed that when we obey, it is better than when we disobey. There is never. Have you ever thought about that? Like I, as a parent, give my kids instructions all the time. I cannot guarantee that obeying those instructions will always produce a better result than if they were to disobey. There might be some times in their life where if, because I'm not, I'm, I'm a fallible person, right? And so sometimes I have a shortage of information or knowledge. I have limited ability to control the outcomes of their lives. I have very limited ability to control that, right? And so I can point them in what I, know and believe to be the right direction, but there might be times where I'm wrong. God is never wrong. And to obey him always in the long run produces a better result than to disobey. 
which is really great because it's a motive to obey. It's a motive to obey. Okay. Let's just bring all that back to the kind of the, we've been through, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. Thank you for covering that ground with me. My sense as we were worshiping is that some of you are, some of you are hurting. And you need, to, you need all of this to be summarized in this way. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. He has made a covenant with you through Christ. He will keep that covenant. And that is an expression of his great affection for you. He loves you deeply. He loves you. You don't have to doubt. Look over the course. He's been working to show you through each covenant, through each movement forward, each, each part of that is a reminder that he loves you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, how glad we are that you are the righteous son of David who is on the throne. We thank you that there will never be a day where you're not on the throne. And we know, Lord, we know that to the world, the news of the cross and the resurrection, it's foolishness. We know that it's foolishness. We know it's something that they make light of. We know that it's not wisdom to them. But we have come to see and understand because you have opened our eyes. We didn't do it ourselves. That you are wisdom from God and that your cross is not folly. It is true wisdom. So we thank you for it. I pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that even as we sing now in response, that you would take hearts of your people and that you would raise them to see Do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, to show your people. Show them. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Show them what no words can do, the depth of your great love for them. We ask you to do it. We need you to do it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.